You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Invite you this time to get your Bibles back out, not to Second Peter, but to the book of First Peter. We continue our series. I have titled Treasuring Christ in Every Trial, which should have been your clue that uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about trials. Um, I do think that that is uh, coming from the reality that Peter is writing about a lot of trials. And so we're really stuck um, here in these first uh, little nine verses uh, this morning and have been for several weeks. Um, we're going to hopefully get a, a, new, a few more verses into the passage this morning. First Peter chapter 1, we'll just read verses 6 through 9. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So we're digging a little more into the passage this morning kind of asking a starter question of what is precious to you? What is of utmost value to you? And when you, how do you find something of value? Like uh, online shopping, I think most of us are involved with that at some level, but when you go buy something on Amazon, do you ever like check out the reviews? Or even if you're just on a different website and they'll say, you know, 50 reviews on this product, Someone who actually has bought the product in the past and reviews it, you kind of take their, you are interested in their opinion. Like, I want to know, did you get this thing? Like, you ever seen the funny, um, there's a, I think, is it Wish? I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't have said that because I'm not going to demean any, any commercial uh, product or whatever. But there's a website out there that would sell furniture. And there's these funny memes out there that they, it looks beautiful. The picture is amazing online. And you go and you buy this couch and you think, wow, this is incredible. And then you get home and it's like doll furniture. The couch is like this big. Like this is a, this is a bargain, a hundred bucks for this giant, beautiful couch. And it's this big. <laughs> and so then you go to the reviews and people are saying, do not buy this couch. It's only three foot long or something along those lines. Like it's important to those who have the knowledge. You, you want to know those who have uh, the, the knowledge of 
the product. If you go to a restaurant, like you uh, maybe you're visiting out of town and someone's a regular at the restaurant. Like if someone came into town and you took them to one of our restaurants and they said, well, what's good here? They're asking because you're a regular. You maybe eat there quite frequently. You can recommend, hey, this, the, the whatever here are really good. And, and your opinion is valued because you are knowledgeable about this certain area. And so valuing what someone who is knowledgeable in important areas is just wisdom. So what does God find precious? I would think that his opinion would be quite important. What God finds as valuable, what he says this is valuable, I think that when he says something is valuable, we ought to listen. It's a good idea that the creator of the universe says something is valuable or is precious. That's a pretty good review. That's a review you might want to take seriously. What does God find precious? What does God valuable? And wouldn't his review of the value of something be quite important? Well, in our passage this morning, what's being told to us is that there is something in the Christian life that is of greater worth than gold, and it is our faith, the gold being a, a treasure for a currency. That's what kings dealt in was gold. Solomon, you know, has all of his gold. Gold is of high value. And so through the apostle Peter, he is saying that God in this you rejoice, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. This faith that a Christian has is more valuable than gold. Peter says that in these necessary trials that we talked about last week, they have come so that our faith of such great value might be purified or proven. That our faith would be proven. Now purifying faith, purifying something doesn't create what isn't there, right? Like you can't purify something and get something totally different. Purifying simply, I mean, by nature of the word, <laughs> purifying purifies whatever is already there. It reveals or makes clearer that which already exists. So what I said last week, you know, when it comes to trials, it can get very dangerous to say, well, if you only had faith, then maybe this trial wouldn't have happened. There are theologies out there that would say something along those lines that basically beats Christians up and say that you wouldn't have had this trouble if you'd have believed God a little better. Um, that's not what Peter says these trials happen. It isn't that the faith isn't there. The trial comes so that this faith that already exists might be purified, might be sanctified, might be clarified, might be cleared up. This isn't that purifying doesn't create what isn't there. It just reveals what is already there. Now, let me state the obvious. I mean, we all know that gold and, and other metals like this can go through a purifying process. And if you were to personify gold, you might guess it doesn't really like the purification process. As it gets heated up to these incredible temperatures and the impurities rise to the top and either burn away or can be removed, that then the product that is left is pure as the gold gets heated up. And that's the illustration Peter takes up that our faith as it goes through these trials, as it is heated up, as it goes through this suffering, it reveals... It purifies your faith. 
It is like our faith is like gold and also not like gold. It's interesting how Peter says it's, it's like gold in that it gets purified through these trials. The gold is heated and the impurities burn away. The places where the gold is weak get burned away and the gold becomes pure. But on the flip side, our faith is also not like gold because Peter says that gold, though it's precious and tested by fire, eventually it fades away. And that's probably, you know, we just read actually 2 Peter chapter 2. I didn't plan that out. But talks about Peter has his eschatology is that at one day everything in the world is going to be purified by fire. At first it was the flood. We just read that in our passage this morning. But coming is a purification of fire. And so gold will eventually perish. It's a thing of this world. But he's saying in contrast to that our faith does not perish. It does not perish. It will not fade away. Our faith is not like gold in that it will not perish. This faith will carry us through this life and on into eternity. But this is something always important to mention when we talk about faith. When it comes to the Christian faith, I mean, we're talking about Christian faith. Faith always has an object. Faith is not just something nebulous that you have. Faith always has an object. If you're to talk about, um, you know, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. They sing, I'm a believer, not the Shrek version by Smash Mouth. That's ugh, the, the, the monkeys version, you know, uh, I'm a believer. He says, I didn't believe. I thought love was only true in fairy tales. But then I saw her face and now I'm a believer. What's he a believer in? Love. He's got faith, faith, belief, same idea there. He's a believer. He has faith, but it's in love. His, the object of the faith there is not what's purified. That, when it's purified by the fire, will be found wanting and not produce a life of eternity with, with God. So the object of the faith really does matter. Well, what's, what's the object here of Peter's, of his faith? And we can, you can read on down the chapter. We'll get there, Lord willing, eventually. But if you read on down in 1 Peter, down to verse 18, Peter gives us, you can see at the end in verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are in God. But now again, we can get real, that can get real difficult. God is a junk drawer term many times. Lots of people talk about God and they mean various different things by the idea of God. God in many ways is just kind of a, a construct, a term we use for a higher power. And so, you know, God, faith in God, what does Peter mean? Just, just a general faith in God? You could quote First uh, John where he's talking about that even the demons believe in God and they shudder. But demons aren't saved. Their faith isn't redemptive. What is this faith and hope that are in God? Verse 19, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, there we are again, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Harkening back to the Old Testament imagery of the lamb who was without blemish, was perfect, who was sacrificed for the sins of the people. 
Jesus, this, in this, this, this precious blood, like a lamb without spot or blemish, he's foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial work, his shedding of blood upon the cross. This is the object of our faith, a very specific, peculiar, but particular faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying that this faith then is tried, it is heated up, it is precious, and then it is revealed as it is heated up. That tested genuineness is revealed, results in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. That last four words there, that's six, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When will this be proven? When will this be shown? When will the praise, glory, and honor happen? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis. There are many, you can, we can look here, how eschatological, I, you know, I love my big words, eschatological, just basically meaning at the end. Eschatology is the study of the end. Where is this all going? What is the eschatological future? What is the end that is coming? Listen to and see how eschatologically focused, how focused on the end Peter is. Verse 3, he talks about... Um, uh, according to his great mercy, you know, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. That's that apocalypsis word there. Apocalypse, you know, we hear that story. Often we think in our culture today, apocalypse is about this big war, apocalyptic war. Well, really the term is just the idea of the end of it all, the apocalypse. The unveiling is what that is, is going on. The, the revelation, the scene, the, un, the unveiling of what's going to happen in the last time. Verse 5 says it. Verse 7, where we just read, where we're reading right now, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can jump down to verse 13. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. There's a day coming, the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Peter is focusing in on the end of time that faces the whole world. But then why the refining of our faith? Well, Jesus in the midst of this is purifying our desires. You can turn to Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles. Jesus is um, purifying our desires. What do you want most? Jesus or what Jesus can bring you? What do you want most? And love for you, Jesus in this work, is, is ensuring, purifying that motive so that you love what is most valuable. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, you probably heard this story before, but 
As he was setting out on his journey, speaking of Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, speaks the second table here. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, according to the second table, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Disheartened by the saying. Wait a second. Jesus loved him. That's what the passage says. And Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved him in such a way the man left disheartened discouraged, saddened. Why? Because Jesus revealed where his greatest treasure lied. And it wasn't in Jesus. It was love for Jesus. It was love coming from Jesus. It was Jesus loving him to call him to give up his desires, even great wealth and the things of this world, to give them up in order to get what is far better treasure, Jesus himself. That was love for Jesus, a suffering of a type to say all that you've loved, all that you've treasured, this, this, mat, this wealth that you have, that you, that you love and love to have, give it up, a suffering of a type to gain something better, to gain Jesus, to come and follow him, to get treasures in heaven. Purifying our faith through suffering is loving us as it forces us to cling to what is most valuable, Jesus alone. Now, I'll go back to, if you might wrinkle your feathers a little bit, go back to last week. This does not mean the suffering is easy. This does not negate how hard and, and, and uh, confusing Suffering is as you're in it. We've worked on that uh, in, the, in the previous passages. But at the end of the day, this necessary suffering, because it values so greatly your faith in Jesus, your love for Jesus, and it's purifying that, it is love from Jesus to purify your faith that might Take your hands off the things of this world to cling only to Jesus. Purifying our faith through suffering is loving us. Even though we, it might be disheartening at times as we have to, it would have been disheartening either way probably for that guy at some level. If the rich young ruler had let his treasures go and followed Jesus, you can imagine the disheartenment that that might have been in a worldly perspective. That suffering but to gain Christ is far better. In fact, getting Jesus is no mere consolation prize. The rich young ruler's sorrow was absolutely wrong-headed. What he felt was sure to be a loss, the real sense in losing worldly treasures, but it was certainly going to be gain. 
And that is the point that Jesus makes at the end of that interaction with his disciples. Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus says, you'll receive uh, in this life houses, lands, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, and in the next world life, in the life to come, eternal life. In the world to come, eternal life. This is the promise that Jesus makes to him. But he is no mere consolation prize. But can we be confident that this is inheritance that Peter speaks of is a sufficient replacement for all that we know we clearly will enjoy in this life. We have certainties of this life and here Peter is saying, no, losing them, suffering if necessary is, is worth it. Treasure, it purifies your faith. It forces you to treasure Jesus. Okay, Darren, but how? I mean, is that really, is that, is that really going to happen? Well, I, I, this is astonishing to me. I didn't, I didn't get this my first several weeks working through this. So this week, I'm looking through this. Whose praise, at the end of verse seven here, Whose praise, glory, and honor is, is Peter speaking of? He says this, 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 this faith is going to be tested, genuine, it's going to be proved, and it's going to be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose praise, glory, and honor is Peter talking about? And now, the reason why I didn't catch it is because, I mean, I default every time. It's going to glorify Jesus. And it absolutely is. I mean, it's clear from Scripture. You can go to places like um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, which says that the revealing of Jesus Christ, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That what is absolutely coming is the, is the revealing of the glory of God, of Jesus Christ. You can read Revelation chapter 7, I believe it is, the throne room of God where the 24 elders and all the angels are gathered around singing holy, holy, holy. And all this worship is going to God and to the Lamb who was slain. God is glorious and he will be glorified and honored and praised. And so it's absolutely an understandable reading to say that when our faith is tested and when Christ returns, glory and honor and, and, and praise will happen. Absolutely. But this passage is talking about for the assurance of the believer. It, it's, it, it's interesting. I mean, you don't have to. I, just, I think it's an interesting perspective on the passage. The emphasis Peter is making in this passage is for the believer's confidence through the trials and sufferings of this life. This confidence and perseverance is made possible by the focusing the eyes of the believer upon the great reward that there is in Christ, right? He's saying you have an inheritance. You've been caused to be born again to a living hope. It's all these, here's all these great things happening for you. You can suffer well trusting him because here's what is, is happening to you and in you. And so therefore, I think it is a fair reading to say that this praise, this honor, this glory that happens at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're caught up into. This rejoicing, this praising, this honor, this glory is of the ones trusting Christ as well. At least in some measure, the joy of those who are Christ's people will share in this glory, this honor, this praise Jesus brings more 
than just an end to suffering. He brings the reward of joy. Like to talk about suffering, it's so easy. I mean, and I get, I abstract, I think in my mind and I say, okay, kind of like a Joseph thing. Satan meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God has a plan, sovereign, he's working it out. I get it, okay, I can make sense of it. But Jesus does more than just make sense of suffering. He's bringing joy in it. He's bringing your joy in it. Not in the moment. We're not crazy. And we're going to say, yay, I love suffering. But Jesus absolutely is bringing your joy. Now, you can't say it definitely from that passage. But look with me briefly. Romans chapter 8, where I think we're going to use the old good old biblical interpretation method of the Bible should interpret the Bible. So we look at Romans chapter 8, not 28, but go to verse uh, 16. Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? That's wild, folks. That's wild. That those who are in Christ at his revealing, not only will rejoice that he's been revealed, not only will we will glorify him, but we will somehow be caught up in that glory, in that joy that Jesus has in his Father. We will be caught up into that reality. As we share in his sufferings, we also shall share in his glory. The joy of the Savior will be our very own joy. So where does that leave us? Well, in my own heart and maybe in yours as well, as we've thought about this suffering from the Christian, we remind ourselves with, with some realities, right? That if necessary suffering, we remember God is absolutely in control. And therefore, any suffering that does come to your way does not come to you accidentally, which is a hard truth, but it also means it isn't meaningless. It's not pointless. God is working something. It's not pointless. Nothing is meaningless. God is in control. Secondly, we know that God is working good purposes. We may not understand that now. Indeed, we may never fully understand the reason for every individual suffering, but we can have confidence that God is working out his perfect plan, his good plan for the good of his people. Those are absolutely good and valuable truths revealed to us in Scripture, and they shouldn't be ignored. But again, as I read this text this week, it struck me, that the hope we live with is not being able to wrap our minds around and get the, 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 the payoff of suffering, but the, what we live upon is the joy that there will be at the revealing of Jesus Christ. It won't, like we, it won't be a math sheet. It won't be an Excel spreadsheet that we get to the end, we see Jesus like, oh, well, look, all those columns totaled up. Mm, that was neat. It's... It's, it's joy, glory, honor, and praise. The suffering, if necessary, while in this season, grieved by various trials, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. And we often quote the comforting promise 
Found in Revelation 7, 17, this one of the places that tells us this final scene, right? Where he will wipe every tear from their eyes, right? The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love that promise. When you're in the middle of grief, I love the promise that he'll wipe every tear from your eye. And I don't want to sell that moment short because that's beautiful to think of God wiping your tears away. But it isn't as though it's just a simple wiping away of tears and leaving your face just tearless. It isn't just leaving your, wiping your tears away and leaving your face tearless. It's the tears are wiped away and your face is filled with joy at the revealing of Jesus. It's not just wiping the ledger clean and making all the columns add up. It is resulting in the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. While the reasons behind so much of our suffering in this life will remain a mystery, the final result is not left to mystery. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he returns in all of his glory, we will share in his glory and in his joy. It won't just make sense. We'll rejoice. You'll rejoice. You'll rejoice. We won't abstractly look back over our lives, recognize and understand. We will see and we'll rejoice. Our faith, believing that, purified through these various trials, this will result in praise and honor and glory at that great final day. That's why, if you looked at your bulletin, I was asked if I'd lost my mind when I walked into church this morning, lovingly. Because we're going to sing Joy to the World, which is a Christmas song. Actually, it wasn't written as a Christmas song. Isaac Watts wrote it as a commentary on a couple of different psalms that the, the joy, joy to the world is when Jesus comes in his final manifestation, right? Let the Lord, let the earth receive its king. The Savior reigns. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Sins and sorrows still are growing even after Jesus in his first incarnation, his first advent. But there's a joy to the world coming, not an understanding coming. Joy to the world that is coming and all of it given to us freely through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, do this work in every heart. God, this is, <laughs> this is nothing that really uh, even a, the best of communicators can just get across through words. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see this, that we are not just merely thinking and trying to get columns to add up, but we are looking forward to the return, the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ that will result in praise and honor and glory. And on that day, we won't add everything up and make sure it counts. We'll be caught up in the joy that there is in you. And that the sufferings of this life and the things that have grieved us and have broken our hearts won't just be totaled up in a way that makes sense. They will be outshone. The, the, the eternal weight of glory will outweigh those sufferings for the joy that there is in who you are and what you've done for us. So as we head into a time of communion, God, help us to celebrate 
that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.